I don't know what uh, the book of Romans means to you. For some, it means that it's just kind of this frightening book because it's got a lot of things going on theologically and teaching and all of this. And, and you can kind of be overwhelmed when you look at it. And there's this 16 chapters of uh, different words here. Actually, 7,100 words in the Greek. And you just kind of go, there's a lot of words there to try and take in. And some of them are, are massive words. But for many of us, uh, we would understand the impact that it has had on other individuals throughout church history. When you think about individuals in the relation to the book that uh, Paul wrote here, this letter that Paul wrote, it, it changed their life when they came in contact with it. One of the early church fathers, uh, individuals involved in the church, a man by the name of Augustine, Augustine was a very intelligent man known for uh, his studying thinking, and as he uh, was growing throughout life and doing business, he was a very uh, handsome individual, but the problem with that was that uh, he used that to live a very immoral life. And he lived life for himself, but kind of got to the point of trying to figure out if there was anything in life that really meant anything. Just kind of an individual who was wandering and what happened on one day that he was at a friend's house in Milan, Italy, and he heard a child singing on the other side of the wall. And uh, I am not going to try and say how it was said in uh, Italian, but it just simply said this, uh, take and read, take and read, take and read. And for Augustine, he kind of took that as a statement uh, from the Lord for him to go and read a Bible. And so he went and found a copy of the, the scriptures that he had, and he just kind of flipped through, not a good way to do Bible reading, but he just kind of flipped through and goes, okay, I'm going to find something here. And as he did, he turned in his Bible, and as he stopped, he, his eyes rested on this passage in Romans chapter 13 and verse 13 and 14. It says this, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, which is the exact sin that he was doing. And then he read this, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That was enough to convince him of his own sin and that it was sin and that he needed Jesus Christ and it changed his life forever just merely reading those verses two short verses. Perhaps another individual that you're much more familiar with, and that is a man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is an individual who originally wanted to, his dad wanted to be a lawyer, and he really didn't want to do that, but eventually he decided uh, that he was going to at least take classes to make his dad happy, and all of a sudden what happened was there was an event that took place in his life where he was nearly struck by lightning, and he decided that he was going to become a monk. And so he thought maybe living life and doing things uh, in a way that would be pleasing to God, that somehow he could earn his salvation. But over time, he found himself exceedingly frustrated because what he found is even though he was doing all sorts of things that were good, he found himself still exceedingly unrighteous. He just, he couldn't handle it. It was a burden that he couldn't bear. And so he would do more things. And people were at the point where just saying, would you stop doing so much? 
A, because they were so embarrassed that he was doing more, but B, because they just, they got tired of trying to answer his questions. What do I do? What more can I do to possibly gain merit with God and gain favor with God? The whole process of this, he, he was a teacher at a newly formed university in Wittenberg, and he was told he had to teach certain classes, and so he didn't really like the philosophy that he was going to have to teach, and somebody suggested the fact that he maybe teach some things out of Scripture. You know, the, the theology, you would figure that they'd be teaching that, but that was not a course that was offered at his university. And so what he did is he started to read uh, in the book of Romans and started just going through this. And as he read it, in the very first few verses, he was convicted. He was convicted by the fact that there was a righteousness that God had that was bringing wrath upon mankind. That's verse 18 of this chapter, but verse 17, the righteousness of God has appeared in a man, and then you have the wrath of God is revealed on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he just, he's going, I'm facing this massive weight. I'm under the judgment of God. What can I do to improve my righteousness so that God will no longer be angry with me? But then all of a sudden, he, as he was working through to try and teach others, uh, he is looking at the statement at the end of verse number 17, and this statement, the just, or the ones who have right standing before God, shall live by, and this was the shocking word for him, by faith. He had been living by works. And for him, it was just so simple that it's simply by faith that it took him a while to comprehend that this was really true, that a person could have a right standing before God just simply by faith grasping on to Jesus Christ, recognizing their own sinfulness. And from that point on, this man was an individual who was preaching the Scripture and eventually got himself in trouble on a number of different occasions. But uh, he is the one that really was a, a key pivot individual for moving uh, Europe from what was known as the Dark Ages to a time where people were understanding what God had actually said and, and what the Scripture said and what it declared. But it was just simply that verse in verse number 17 where he just went and thought time and time again, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther had impact on another individual in church history. There was a young man who had spent his life trying to impress God by his deeds. In fact, he was part of a group at college known as the Holy Club. You say, why was that? Well, because he was trying by his own holiness to gain merit and favor with God. And you say, well, why was that necessary? The 1700s in the early part were a disastrous time in England. And most of the population was drunk and immoral, and it was just a bad time. And so they said, well, we'll be better than the rest of society. If we just live our life and are holy, we'll be pleasing to God. But he went and served as a missionary and did all of these things and, and came back and had preached this kind of thing and realized the fact that he didn't have anything to really please God. He had run into a group that had, uh, had some faith in God. He had seen them in a storm uh, praying and praising God during a storm, and he said, I, I don't have that. I don't have that kind of confidence that if I'm going to die as this boat sinks, uh, that I'm going to be with God. So he eventually went to this group of what were known as Moravians, and he went to a meeting, 
And in that meeting, there really wasn't a whole lot going on, but what was being read was the preface to Martin Luther's epistle to the Romans. So someone was just merely reading the introduction to a book, a commentary by Martin Luther on the book of Romans. And as this was being read, John Wesley sat there and began to think through the implications of what were being said there, that it was not that a person was saved by works, but just simply saved by faith. And uh, he recorded in that, that journal, as soon as he had figured this out, that God works in the heart through faith and changing an individual, that at that very moment he said this, there was a strange warming of his own heart. He had uh, trusted in the Lord and trusted in Christ alone for his salvation. The first time he had assurance that his sins had been taken away and thus saved from the law of sin and death. And you say, well, what did John Wesley do? Well, he was uh, one of the important cogs that God used in what was known as the Great Awakening, both here in the United States and in England, uh, where hundreds of thousands were saved as a result of the working and the ministering of individuals like this. See, this is not merely a book that you can take lightly because of the ability it has to impact people for eternity. In fact, for some of you, when you were saved, you probably heard some of these verses. Okay, let me just read a few that you'll find in Romans. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. You can go around this globe and not find a single person that's got a right standing before God. They do something that's wrong in their life. Romans 3.20, therefore by the deeds of the law, the works of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight and God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Or just a few verses later, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And you can go on. Or Romans 5, 6, it says this, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man, uh, for a righteous, or whatever, for a righteous man will one die, but preventure for a good man, some would even dare to die, but then this, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us by sending his son into this world. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does a person get saved? They come by hearing the word of God and then coming to this point where they're going, I believe what is said here about this one Christ. Well, you say, well, I've gotten saved. I, I can kind of ignore the book of Romans. Well, you read through the book of Romans and you begin to find out it's just a starting point. Because there are things that are going on presently in your salvation. It's not that you're working for your salvation, but God's doing a, a thing to transform you, to make you more like His Son to make you more, look more like the, the Savior that saved you. And that process is going to take place until you die, and there you'll be glorified in, in heaven. But there's a lot of verses for believers 
Romans 5.1, it says this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in the hope and glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Perhaps you thought, uh, just reading later in Romans chapter 6, you thought, you know what, I'm saved now, and I can do whatever I want. My sins are already taken care of. Well, Romans 6, 1, this question says this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? An old phrase, that statement, meaning may it never be, but that statement, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? There ought to be a transformed life. There ought to be change. There ought to be sin that we're seeing that no longer has control over us. Romans 6.11 continues the thought. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Perhaps you've experienced the frustration of failing time and time again, though you're a believer. Well, Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, the Apostle Paul, okay, the Apostle Paul is making this statement. So think about this, a man who wrote 13 books in our Bible and started multiple churches. Verse 24, Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Frustration over sin and life. But then the statement is this. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And then it goes right into verse 1 of chapter 8. There is no, therefore now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Even though I sin, there's no eternal condemnation for me. And so what am I supposed to do then? Uh, you find as you go through Romans chapter 8, this book, that, or excuse me, a part of the book that's just giving us all sorts of encouragement as we live out our Christian life. It says this in verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I mean, that's an amazing statement that we receive the inheritance that Christ receives. Amen. We'll talk about that as we get there. But if so be that we suffer with him, we'll be also glorified together with him. Or Romans 8, 8, 26, there are times in your Christian life where you just get frustrated because you don't know what you're supposed to pray. You know, we've had some different prayer requests in our family where you're kind of going, you know, I'm praying for this, but really maybe I should be praying for this. I really don't know what's the proper thing to pray is. Well, Romans 8, 26, likewise, the Spirit, God's, God, the Holy Spirit, also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what the mind of the Spirit is, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them also he, he excuse me, also glorified. Or he continues on, verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And then perhaps one of the most used verses when it comes to my life and what I'm supposed to do with it, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, starts this way, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, a holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Don't be pressed down by this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is the, that good and acceptable and perfect You say, what's that? The will of God. And you could go on and on and on, but as you look at this, there are many things for people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and there's many things in this book for people who know Jesus Christ, but they need to live this out, that they know this Savior, and they know Him. And so it's a book that's good for any of us to study, but it's really the implications as we look at this are implications of what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ has done in our life. As we start off uh, the book of Romans, we just need to get a few things settled in our mind. And for you, as you look through this book and we consider it uh, here for a little bit, you say, who's the author? Well, the author is Saul of Tarsus, now named Paul say, why is that significant in a book like this? Well, if you want to know if meeting Jesus Christ and putting your faith in him has any sort of power and there's anything going on there when that happens, all you had to do was to look at the life of Saul, who became Paul. He met the Lord on the Damascus road and he was miraculously changed from being a persecutor of Jesus Christ to a persuader of men to follow Jesus Christ. It changed uh, in an instant. And so as you read this book that talks about the good news of Jesus Christ, you might be wondering, ah, it's just a bunch of words. Does it really impact? And the author knew the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, who's receiving this letter? Well, that's not another difficult question. You think, okay, teachers sometimes ask a trick question, but this is a pretty easy one. You say, well, who is this letter being written to? It's being written to people at Rome. This is a church that Paul had never visited. It wasn't started by Peter, as some would consider uh, and think that that's the case. It wasn't started by Peter. Uh, It's a church that got started without really seemingly any major individuals, apostles being a part of it. You say, well, where uh, where did this possibly happen that you had people that were suddenly in Rome? 
We're not going to turn there, but Acts chapter 2, that day of Pentecost, where all these individuals were gathered in Jerusalem for a feast, they were there uh, for this feast day, and suddenly you have these apostles and other individuals who are filled with the Holy Ghost, and they start going out in the streets, and they're announcing the good news of Jesus Christ in languages that they had never learned, but speaking to people in their own dialect, and their own tongue about Jesus Christ, and some of the individuals that are there, you have people from North Africa, you have people from Persia, from India, regions like that. But there's a group of people mentioned from Europe. You say, who is that? They were described, there was only the only group from Europe that was at Pentecost that's mentioned in the book of Acts. It was this, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. And you go, what's a proselyte? A proselyte was a Gentile who believed in the one true God. And so it may very well have been that these individuals who came here at Pentecost and heard the message of Jesus Christ went back with that message. But whatever the case in the time in between, the 20, 25 years in between this, there had been a church that was started in Jerusalem that Paul had never been to, and he's trying to write them. He's trying to write them and um, give them address, or give them uh, some different things that they needed. You say, when was this written? As best as we can figure, this is probably a book that is written or a letter that was written on Paul's third missionary journey. His first missionary journey, Paul went to what we know as modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, uh, Galatia, and places like that. The second one, he actually goes to that area, but then goes across into Europe and goes to places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and ends up in Corinth. And he goes back to Jerusalem, and then on the third missionary journey, he spends time in Ephesus for a time, and spends time in Corinth and places like that. And somewhere in that time, on that third missionary journey, he writes this letter to this church at Rome. You say, well, what is he trying to do? Well, he's preparing for a visit. Say, how do you know that? Look at verse 13 of this first chapter. He's making this statement uh, to them. Now I would have you not to be ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purpose to come unto you, but have been let hitherto or stopped hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you, even as also amongst other Gentiles. He's planning for this. I've been planning to get to Rome, but I haven't gotten there yet. You say, why was Rome so important? Well, think about this. All roads led to Rome and all roads led away from Rome. So if you can go to Rome and give the gospel there, there are going to be people that are spreading this all over the, the Roman Empire. So one purpose is that he was looking to get there. He's also talking to them about the fact that he wants to plant a church or do some church planting in an area and region that we now know as Spain. Uh, you find this in Romans chapter 15 where he's just talking about this. He wants to go over to Tarshish and places like that and preach the gospel there in the regions of Spain. And he also wants these people to be praying for him because at the end of Romans 15, he's praying that he would be delivered out of the hands uh, of angry men. And he's asking the Romans to specifically pray for him that this would happen. There are other reasons that uh, could be given that Paul's trying to make a, a connection with this church at Rome that he's not had. He's an apostle to the Gentiles, the nations. He's hoping to, as he says in verse 11, to impart into them some spiritual gift, to give them some things that will be an aid to them in their life. But also he wants to answer some of the questions of salvation that both Jews and Gentiles have. As you read through this book, he's going to answer questions for Jews, 
and everyone else who's non-Jews, the Gentiles. And questions that they might have when it comes to their standing before God and how to change that standing before God and then how to live that out. And he's going to answer these questions. By far, this is the longest letter of Paul. It's 7,100 words in length. Uh, We have about, uh, in looking at uh, ancient Roman culture uh, in this time frame, uh, we have about 14,000 letters. Letters that we have, that we have copies of, that we can read, and that type of thing. Uh, We don't have Paul's original autograph, but we have a lot of letters from back then. And most of the time, those letters you find are anywhere between 18 and 200 words. Say, Romans is 7,100 words. That makes it a really, really, really long letter by even Roman standards. So when this church receives this letter, they're recognizing the fact that it's not just I'm coming, prepare a place for me, uh, looking forward to seeing you. They realize there's something here that the Apostle Paul is wanting to deal with, and it's not just merely something to be read in a minute or two. It's something that is worthy of their consideration over a length of time. I mean, you read other, Paul's other letters, they range about 1,300 words. So Romans is just kind of this mammoth book that he is trying to get something across. And one has said this, its length as well as its profound subject matter marks it out as a most unusual letter, even in the New Testament. You say, why is uh, the, the structure of this book Really, the book's main body is verse 16 that we started off with. It's not ashamed of the gospel, which has the power of God, and it kind of works its way to chapter 11 and verse 36. The other parts of it are kind of extra things that the Apostle Paul is adding to it. We'll talk a little bit at the end about the structure of this, that you can read through it and at least get a basic structure of this, but... It's not that he's answering a series of questions like we're looking at in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're going through and answering questions, Paul's answering questions that the church sent to him. This is one he's just writing them and saying, okay, you need to know this, and giving them this amount of time. And as you go through this book, one thing that is the center portion of this is that you find out that there's a person at the center of salvation. You say, who's that? As you read through this book, you'll find the name of God come up. At the frequency of every 46 words, you'll find the name of God. And uh, you say, well, why is that important? Because God is the one who settles salvation and makes it known to us and secures it for us and does all of this. God is central when it comes to salvation. And you find him being center, but what he is doing is that he is giving us good news. When you start off and read the first three chapters of Romans, you will be discouraged. If you're, if you're not discouraged, you're not reading it. And by the time you get done with that, you'll want good news. Remember a man that uh, a few years ago was reading through this and uh, he just came to me and he said, those three chapters are some of the most miserable chapters I have ever read. Because I don't like reading that. 
He says, I'm ready for something good after that. And you're going, that's what this is. What God is declaring is what the news is about you, but that news doesn't have to remain the same. There's good news. The word gospel is the word good news, or the the phrase good news. They're the same thing. You find something bad out, and you want good news. And as you go through from the first to the last, this book is about what God is doing, the good news that he's presenting. Right off in the very first verse, you have this statement as you look out, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, and you turn to the very last uh, portion of this book, and you just consider what God is talking about. In verse number 25, as Paul closes up this letter, he's saying this, now unto him that is the power to establish you according to my gospel. The good news that I've told you about this whole time, and you just go from place to place, and you see this idea that the good news is the theme of this book. It's the gospel of God, the gospel of the Son. Paul was ready to preach the gospel. He was not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, he talks about his gospel, how beautiful the feet of those who preach the gospel. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that one. That one's always been one that's fascinating me, how, how you can describe how beautiful the feet of those that preach the gospel But Paul says that is a part of this. Uh, And there are people who disobey the gospel, that the Jews are enemies of the gospel, that God chose uh, Paul to be a minister of the gospel. He was looking to preach the gospel in regions where it had not been preached. And that he is uh, closing off, he's saying, according to my gospel. And so you say, this book's all about the gospel. That's right. And so we come and uh, we've had all of that. And you say, what was that? That's all introduction. Trust me, we won't be much longer. But that's all introduction for us to get verses 16 and 17 in our mind. Because if you can figure out at least a little bit of verses 16 and 17, you've got the starting point for the rest of the book. For Paul, this was the key statement that he works off of the rest of the book uh, for him. I mean, most commentators recognize in these two verses the text of the epistle. It's not wrong to see a summary of Paul's theology as a whole in these two verses. And the two verses have importance out of proportion, all proportion to their very short length. And so you look at what Paul says there in verses 16 and 17. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, also to the Greek For therein the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Paul starts off here, and he just simply makes the statement, the good news of Jesus Christ is nothing to be ashamed of. You say, why is that? Well, you just think about the story of what happens when you hear the good news. Paul, in another letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, defines the gospel in such a way... Uh, that it can be easily condensed into what the gospel includes. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye had believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received. And here's what Paul says. Here's what's the good news. Here's what I've been telling you. It's this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. When he says there there is this, that this was prophesied that Christ would die, 
confirmation that he died was that he was buried. And you say, well, why did he have to die? Because it was of our sins. Our sins is what put Christ on the cross and why he had to die. Not his own sins. He was put on the cross for our own sins. And he was buried, which is confirmation that he really did suffer the final punishment for sin. And then, verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain in this present day, and some are fallen asleep. And after that he was seen of James and all the apostles, and after last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of time, for I am the least of the apostles, am not, excuse me, I am the least of the apostles, and not me to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And what he just says, he says this, this one who died because of our sins, rose from the dead. And if you really wonder if he rose from the dead, there's all sorts of people you can go to and ask them, did you see the risen Lord? And they would tell their stories how they met the resurrected Lord, that he really truly was alive, that he was not held by the grave. And Paul says, I was one of the last ones to see him alive because he saw him on the Damascus road and was taught by the Lord in the wilderness for a time. And he says, I was not worthy to receive this good news, but Jesus Christ, he was willing to die in my place for me a wretched persecuting sinner he died for me for him that's the good news it's simply this person jesus christ who was god and man who never sinned in this life but came into this world to rescue us as sinners died and paid our penalty and rose again to show and guarantee us that there was the possibility of victory over death and having eternal life but think about this in a roman culture What did they do when they had heroes? They glorified individuals who did great things in battle and did great things in their culture, and they celebrated this and had big parades and big triumphs and put up statues to them and even put up temples to them to have them worshipped. And when it came to talking about Jesus Christ, what did you have? You had this individual who was supposedly a hero that ended up dying in the worst form of Roman execution. And for you to go around and proclaim this in Rome with all these statues and all of these pictures and all of these temples, and you're going around and going, my hero is one who died on a cross. What is the Roman reaction going to be? Really? Really? Your hero is someone who died on the cross? And one's put it this way, the gospel of a crucified carpenter in the streets of imperial Rome. Is this not an idea that's so foreign as to make one ashamed of this prospect? Paul, he's saying this. No, he's not ashamed, for the gospel is divine power. Paul was going to preach Jesus, who was thought to be a carpenter's son, who was brought up in Judea in the house of a mean woman, who had no bodyguards, who was not encircled in wealth, and didn't even, or it, it didn't even have the dignity of dying a proper death, but died as a culprit uh, with robbers and endured many other inglorious things. I mean, there were reasons to go around Rome and go, well, am I going to talk about this one who died on a cross? And Roman citizens are just sitting there going, why would you want to preach about a, a person like that? To a Roman whose gods had defeated all the nations and brought the Pax Romana, uh, the peace of Rome, the fact that a man named Jesus who was crucified by his own people would be something to them that's insignificant and unworthy of their time. But Paul goes, I am not ashamed of this. 
I'm not ashamed of this because it is the power of God unto salvation. And so you see the gospel is not something to be ashamed of, but the gospel is the power of God that saves. The gospel is power. There's power in preaching this one who is Jesus Christ. You say, how does it save? Well, positively, you look at uh, different things. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, we were at one time enemies. You realize you were battling against God, and that's why you deserved eternal separation from God, because you were his enemy. But what Romans 5 tells us is this, is that God, uh, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. You were an enemy of God, but because of Jesus Christ, you're now reconciled and a friend of God. Now you think about in history how that works out. When you're a defeated foe and you've been a horrible enemy uh, to another country or you're an enemy of somebody else, they don't take you in. There's a distance even after the peace treaty is signed. But in this case, no, there's a complete change. The status is completely different. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this, For the preaching of Christ is to them, that, to them that perish foolishness, but unto them which are saved it is the power of God. And for those of you that have come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've seen the transforming power. It's not something that you worked up, but the change that took place, you knew it. And you knew it wasn't you. You knew it wasn't self-effort of any kind. It was God inserting himself into your life and doing a work to change you for eternity. There is power in the gospel, and there is this idea that it saves from wrath. Romans 5, 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then the good news is simply this, is that you think about this, that it's got great power, but you say, who can it save? Well, there'd be certain people going, oh, it can only save Jews. You know, they're the ones who for generations have had this temple of the one true God. Only Jews can truly be saved. But what the Apostle Paul says, no, it's the power of God into salvation to the Jew first. You say, why the Jew first? Because they had an understanding of Old Testament scriptures. They could understand the truth of the gospel. You had to do a little bit more explaining to Gentiles. But the good news came to them first. And it's Good news that can save Jews. It's good news that can save Gentiles. So you're saying it can save anyone. And the answer is it can save anyone. The worst and most horrible of individuals in this world right now that you can think of, the gospel has the power of saving. So you just think about a criminal that you despise or a dictator that you hate and you go, they could never be saved and never be transformed. And what you're ignoring the fact is, is that Apostle Paul was writing the letter and he was the most despicable of individuals against the Christians. And yet the Lord saved him. The gospel has power. Anyone can be saved by it, Jews and Greeks. And you say, well, what do they have to do in order to accomplish it? Well, that's because the work's already been done on the cross. No one has to do anything except believe. Like a person who's drowning, who receives a, a, life, a, a life preserver that's thrown to them, and you grasp this. So it is when it comes to salvation. Here you have Jesus Christ offered, and it's just the hands of the heart in faith grasping onto this gift of Jesus Christ, and it's that simple. And you say, that takes a lot of power for it to be that simple, and the answer, it is. It is that simple. And you say, are we really in need of salvation? Well, 
your righteousness is not worth anything. I mean, you see here, verse 17, the righteousness of God has been revealed. If you look at what God's standard is, time and time again, you find yourself failing and coming short of the glory of God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. The best of our, our best is not anything to impress God. In fact, it turns his stomach. But you find that man's righteousness uh, is not uh, matching up to God. In fact, we've got things in us. Uh, we're going to find in Romans 2 that we have a conscience. And we have the law of God written in our heart. Uh, we have the, the, our conscience and the law of God written in our heart that is telling us we're not right with him. And we go on and on like this, and we find out we don't have a righteousness. If you really think about it, you realize yourself being as sinful as possible, but God's righteousness has been revealed. You say, through whom? Through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ displays what it is to be right with God, never to sin, never to have a a distance and separation with God. And so when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ, you should come to the point where you're going, I have nothing, my righteousness doesn't stand, but I look at this Jesus and his righteousness stands. I need his kind of righteousness. And so you say, well, what do I do in order to get his kind of righteousness? And that's what that last statement is. The just, the one who has a right standing before God, is one who has obtained this by faith. They're going to live. They're going to live for eternity because they've grasped on to Jesus Christ, someone who doesn't have, their own, doesn't have righteousness like them, but has a perfect right standing with the Father. This is actually, you may want to put this down and we'll talk about it a little bit more as we go through this letter, but that is a quote, uh, the just shall live by faith is actually a quote of an Old Testament passage, Habakkuk, I mean of all passages, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk's a great book to work through, but this one is one where uh, the prophet is just looking for answers to very difficult questions. And in the midst of this, God is just simply saying, you need to take my word by faith. And the statement then was this, the just shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul uh, grabs onto this uh, statement of the Old Testament and uses this both in this book of Romans and the book of Hebrews and in Galatians. He uses this quote uh, multiple times uh, to prove different points and aspects. But in this case, the idea is that there is a right standing with God that you can have by faith. So the question for you today is, have you really considered what your righteousness is like? If you were to go through the Ten Commandments and read through all of the Old Testament and begin to see all the things that God expects of you, do you even match up even close? A person who looks at the Ten Commandments and looks at the law realizes day in and day out they fall far short. I remember a pastor uh, many years ago, uh, back in the 1700s, uh, before he was saved, uh, recognized his own sinfulness. And so what he started doing was that he got himself a ledger book. And on one side of the ledger book, he wrote all the good things he did. And on the other side, he wrote all the bad things that he did. And by the end of the first couple of days, he realized that he had filled up several pages on the one side of all the bad things he had done. And then he looked at the good things he'd done, and he's going, I'm not even close to what I need to be. 
And then he suggested the fact that maybe I just need to focus in on a certain aspect of my life. You know, not lying, not stealing, just that aspect, me not doing that. And when he did that, he just found himself even more filling out the side of his own righteousness. And he finally just closed up that book and said, I, I have no righteousness that I can gain. And it was that stirring in his soul that eventually led him to the fact that he said, I need a righteousness that's not mine. I need a ledger book that's different than mine. And he came and put his faith in Jesus Christ. I know you coming in today, if you thought that you're standing before God is based on who you are and what you've done, well, if that's the case, you're far from God. You'll never, ever come anywhere close to the glory of God. You'll always come up short, as Romans tells us. Righteousness done by works will fail. No attendance of church, memorizing passages of Scripture, saying of prayers will ever save you. You have a righteousness that's different than what the apostles have declared to be God's righteousness. The person that rejects the doctrine of a right standing by faith rejects the gospel. His whole method of salvation and system of religion must be different from those of the apostles. So if you're declaring the fact that if I can do enough good works and get to heaven, what you're going to find as you read the book of Romans, you're not even close. You'll never make it. There's no way to be saved. You can only have a right standing before God for eternity by placing your dependence on Christ for your sins and his resurrection to give you an eternal place in heaven. If that's something that concerns you and you're, you're saying, I don't know whether or not I'm, I'm in right standing with God, I challenge you in the week ahead or even today, you can sit down and read it today, read through this letter to the Romans. And I'm going to give you just a very quick, you might want to write down this outline, a very quick outline for you to just understand. You know, you say, I need some structure to understand what I'm reading. I'm going to give this to you, but I challenge you to read this book. As you read through this book, what you're going to find in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and I'm going to alliterate this. I don't normally do this, okay? So this, this will make it easier for you, okay? Chapters 1, 2, and 3 up to verse 20 in chapter 3 is about sin. Your sin and your sin nature, it's all about that. At verse 21... To the end of chapter 3 and verse 21 to chapter, the end of chapter 5 is all about salvation. Okay, how do I get saved? And questions I might have about being saved and that. Chapters 4 and 5 just deal with these questions. A person might say, well, can I really be saved and this be the case? And can I be saved if this is the case? And those questions are answered. So you have sin and salvation. But then you get into chapter 6 through chapter 8, and it's dealing with sanctification. You go, what's that? Living out the salvation that a person has. You've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ? Well, you live a different life. And so as you read through that, you're going, this is the kind of life that I can't have if I know Christ as Savior. (laughs) Chapters 9 through 11 are dealing with sovereignty and security. What do you mean by that? There are going to be certain people that are going to bring up certain things in the Bible and say God doesn't hold to his promises. So maybe God might not possibly be able to save me. You know, people who are saved at times have doubts that are put into their mind. Questions that are put in their mind. Am I really saved? 
Well, what chapters 9 through 11 are dealing with is that there's a sovereignty of God that he will always fulfill his promises and it gives us security. So that's why I call it sovereignty slash security. And then you get to the last sections, 12 through the end, we're dealing with service. What does it look like in individual activities and events to be a Christian? What does that look like when I have been saved by the mercies of God? My life being transformed, what does it look like in daily activities, daily events, daily meetings? What is it and how does it play out? So sin, first three chapters, salvation as you go through the next two chapters, sanctification chapter six through nine or six through eight, sovereignty security nine through eleven, and then service chapter twelve to the end. And if you read through this and you just say, okay, Lord, you know, I, I think I'm saved or I, I think I am, just say, Lord, as I read through this, help me to see the good news of Jesus Christ, whether or not I'm a person who is in Christ. And then as a believer, if you think, you know, okay, I'm in this category, all right, I'm a believer, then how is my life matching up to that? How is it being lived out? And so for you today, that's the challenge for you that don't know if for sure you're saved, read this book. And if you want more immediate answers, you can come and talk to me and we can point certain things out specifically. But I challenge you to read this book because this book and this letter itself, the letter to the Romans, has saved many just by them coming and understanding the good news and the power of God contained in Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for the great gift of the Savior that has been given to us. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us. This is going to be a uh, wonderful time for us to go through this book of Romans. A lot of material today, Lord. But we pray that if there's one here today that is unsettled about the fact of their standing before you, they're, they're concerned about the fact that when their body eventually closes down and their soul is before you and in in, uh, your presence, whether or not they're going to be with you forever or separated from you forever. Lord, help them to read this book and come to find and know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and that the only thing that we can offer up uh, to you is the fact that we have grasped on to Jesus Christ and Him alone and His finished work on the cross. That's the only thing that will give us any eternal standing before You. So for the one that's here today that's not sure of their standing and they're not sure whether they're saved, may they come to know Jesus Christ and grasp on to Him. And for us as believers, may we recognize the fact that because we're ones who know Jesus Christ and have experienced the power of God already in our lives, that there ought to be things going on to display the outworking of that salvation in our life, the continued working of yourself in our own lives. So Lord, we pray. We pray that you would do a work in our lives as we go through this book and that we would take care of some of those things that are hindering people from seeing the message of the gospel and the power of God because the way we're living our lives may people clearly see there's a work going on in us because of what God has done, what you have done in us. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for 
the salvation you've given to us, may we live it out that know it, and for those that don't know it, may they come to find you a great God that's offered a great son. And this we pray in your son's name. Amen.